Definitely Baby acknowledges the traditional owners, the Wurundjeri Willem and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation, of the land on which we record and share our stories. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and future, and recognise this unceded land on which we live, work and learn always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hi everyone, in this episode I am joined by my beautiful doula Bree, who shares this gorgeous list with us that she gave me early in my pregnancy when uh, she started supporting me there, uh, that is this recipes for a successful VBAC. She gives this to all of her clients and it's such a great little list of things that you can kind of get your head around trying to do each day she'd also suggested that I make a pregnancy map as she'd done in her own pregnancy and these are just little tangible things that I can try and make sure that I'm doing each day to feel a little bit more in control and in my power and I'm yeah I'm 38 weeks pregnant now and I am feeling so empowered coming into this birth and so excited for birth which is such an amazing feeling to have. So I'm sure that you're going to get a lot out of listening to these recipes and getting some of those beautiful tips for a VBAC. Whether you're planning one for yourself, you're considering one, you want to learn more about them, or you'd just like to listen along. It's a beautiful episode. I'll hand over to Brie now and I hope that you enjoy. From everything that you've learnt over the years, can you tell us your top tips for anyone who is embarking on their own VBAC journey? So I give my clients this awesome little list and I feel like this is such an awesome comprehensive list and it helps them focus on all the things that can help. And also the way that I, the way I approached my VBAC with my third was And it actually stemmed from me feeling really overwhelmed one day. I had so many things in my brain around, oh, my God, I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I need to do that and I need to manage that. And one of my coping mechanisms when I get overwhelmed like that is to just sit down and write a list. I'm a list writer. I needed to get it out of my head and I needed to write down all these things so that I could take a deep breath and feel like I could in some way even attempt this or manage it right so I started I sat down and I started writing out so at the time I had a very um bad lower back possibly attributed to the two cesareans that I'd had um but I in fairness I had hadn't had a great back before pregnancy either that was a bit of a ongoing issue for me so I was like how am I going to manage the pain in my back um so I wrote down you know, a few things that I needed to do for that. I'd had um, pelvic separation pain in my second pregnancy and I'd heard that that gets worse with each pregnancy. So I'm like, oh, my God, my pelvis is going to be absolutely horrendous through this pregnancy. So I was like, I've got to manage my pelvis. Knowing that I also needed to eat well, I needed to exercise, I knew that there was emotional work I needed to do that I hadn't faced in my second pregnancy. Um. I knew that there was 
things that my husband and I at the time were going to need to work through together. I just felt very overwhelmed with all the things that I felt needed to be lined up in order for me to have the birth that I wanted. So I wrote them all out. And after I wrote them all out, I realized that everything that I put on this list could be put into a category. And those categories were emotional, physical, spiritual, and psychological. So then I I wrote out those four columns and then I went through my list of things and I put everything that, you know, went into one of those columns I put on that list. And then I also noticed that some things went on more than one list. So um, I then, I don't know why, it just sort of came out of me. I then ended up with this beautiful list of how can I support myself emotionally? How can I support myself physically? How can I support myself psychologically? Um, and how can I support myself spiritually? And then I decided to turn this into a piece of artwork. So I drew this beautiful big mandala with all these different colours and all these petals. I wish I had have kept it actually because I mm. I talk about this so often and I wish I could show it to other women. Um, I've written out what I did but I, I wish I, st- I don't know why, I, I don't even remember throwing it out but I can't find it anyway. But I ended up doing this beautiful big colourful drawing of this mandala in in each of the sections. So I had the top quarter of the mandala was the emotional, the other side was the spiritual. So it was like cut into four segments. And then I just listed all of these beautiful things, supportive things that I could do in each of those areas of my life. And I stuck it on the side of my bedroom wall. And I had to make a rule with myself that I was not allowed to look at this as a list of things to do because sometimes that feels heavy and it feels boring (laughs) and it also makes you feel stressed because you look at it and you go, oh, look at all the things I'm not doing that I should be. So I made the rule that I wasn't allowed to look at it like that. I had to look at this list as encouragement and as a positive thing. So what I did was I started looking at it each morning and I'd scan the list and I would look at it through the lens of, what could I do today on this list around what I already have on? Because I, at that point I had, you know, a one-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. So I had two little boys and I was doing, you know, mother's group and kinder runs and, you know, just being a mum, which is quite busy. And so I had to make sure I was carving out little chunks of time each day to look after me and to be ticking something on my list and whether that was sitting down for 20 minutes listening to a meditation while my youngest slept and my eldest was at kinder or whether that was going for a walk with them down to the local lake or whether that was me taking off to a yoga class after they were in bed at night. Um, I I needed to feel productive and So I looked at this list in the morning of what could I possibly do today amongst the other things that I've got on. And then at the end of the day when I got into bed, I'd look at it and I would congratulate myself for any that I had done. So I'd scan the list and go, what did I do today? And sometimes I'd get into bed and I'm like, oh, my God, I did that, that and that. And I'd be like, you did four things today off that list. Go, girl. So I was only allowed to use it as, you know, a positive tool. And that really helped me stay focused and helped me feel like I was taking positive action, at least one thing every single day towards 
having the birth that I wanted. Um, and so I've shared, I've shared that with um, my VBAC clients and I feel like it's, you know, from what I witness, it's really, really helpful to people for people to approach their pregnancy and their birth from that holistic point of view of what are the physical things I can do for my body so that my body's prepared to have a vaginal birth? What are the emotional things I can work on? What is the spiritual things that I can work on or sit with or be open to? And what is the psychological work that's there to do? And that will be different for everybody, but I just really love this approach and I find it it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together and sometimes you don't have all the pieces by the time you give birth, but I think by the end of your pregnancy, if you've really invested in it that way, you, you're starting to get a really good picture of who you are and what your strengths are and what you need and to have a really good, you know, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just to feel really solid coming into it, like a really good solid belief that you can do this. Yeah. So yeah, that that was kind of how I approached my VBAC and I can see now how how much that's filtered through into the way that I now support women and encourage them to because everybody's everybody's path will be unique. Some people are more spiritual than others, some people are more physical than others. Um so I think just looking looking at this from all the different corners that you can and creating your own unique pathway to your birth, it's it's pretty special. Mm, yeah it sounds great and you've just sent that through to me recently so mm. I need to set that up for myself and print it off and have it there accessible mm. to look at yeah yeah excited to get into I that. think I think there's something really lovely also about just carving out that time to sit down and go what are my needs what are my wants yeah. how am I going to do this and just mapping mm-hmm. it out it's so easy yeah. especially as you know already being mums it's so easy to just go in the back of your mind oh my god I wanted to walk today and I didn't get a walk in and we just constantly beat ourselves up for all the things that we don't do that we had, you know, we might have good intentions of doing all of these things. Um, sometimes I get contacted by women at 35, 36, even 37 weeks and they're like, I've been thinking about contacting a doula my whole pregnancy and I've just been so busy I haven't gotten around mm-hmm. to it. I've realised I'm about to give birth and I'm having a moment. And I'm like, it's okay. It's never too late. Yes, yeah. more work we could have done if we had have had more time, but it doesn't mean that this is no longer not useful and we with the still time and the still work we can do so um you know we all we all go on this path in our own ways at the, at the perfect time yeah yeah exactly oh well, thank you so much for sharing those things with us that's okay My yeah um so i can actually if you want me to just read through i've got a great little list here of things that i think are really really important to consider when when planning a, B, a vbac mm. um yep. so to i mean we could spend hours going through this list and unpacking <laughs> each one yeah yeah even just as a dot point list i think this might be really valuable to your listeners yeah so first yeah, of all so, so these are the top things that i see uh and the more of these that you can tick the more likely you are to achieve a vbac So the first one is choice of primary caregiver, choosing who you're birthing with, whether that's choosing a midwife, choosing an obstetrician, um, choosing fragmented care at the public system, choosing shared care with your GP. You need to choose somebody that is going to support you and somebody who believes in VBAC and is not going to talk you out of it or someone, you know, there's no point going and choosing an obstetrician that has a 85% cesarean rate 
and asking them to support you in a VBAC. It, you know, the stats say it's very unlikely that's going to happen. Um, mm. So choosing someone to care for you who is supportive of VBAC and is going to support your wants. And for a lot of women that's hard because they don't feel like they have choice, you know, particularly women who live in more remote areas or rural areas where there's only one hospital and that one hospital might even be an hour away. They probably don't feel like they have a lot of choice. Um, there might not be any independent midwives in their area. So, you know, home birth with the attendance of a registered midwife might not even be an option for them. So I really feel for women where they have very, very few options. Um, the next dot point is your choice of birthplace. So again, home, hospital. For some people in Australia, they have the option of a birth centre. Unfortunately, we don't have birth centres here in Victoria anymore, which is such a shame. Mm. Um, so yeah, the place that you choose to birth bringing it back to what I was saying before about you will birth well where you feel the safest, where your nervous system feels the safest. So, you know, not feeling safe in hospital and choosing to go to hospital, that's probably not a good choice for you. And and vice versa, not feeling safe to birth at home and choosing to birth at home because it's what everyone tells you to do, that wouldn't be a good choice either. Uh, belief in your body that it's capable of vaginal birth. And that can sometimes be hard because it's really, you know, if if the reason for your first cesarean has been because you didn't dilate or it took too long or it just didn't happen for whatever reason, it's hard to come out of that experience having 100% faith that your body knows what to do and your body works. So sometimes there's a bit of emotional work there in that second pregnancy or in that VBAC pregnancy to regain some faith and trust in your body and that it knows what to do. 100% commitment to VBAC, so not not a, oh, yeah, I'd like to give it a shot kind of attitude. Um, I'd like to try for a VBAC kind of attitude. Instead, I'm, I'm a big fan of I'm having a VBAC. Yeah, you're all in, not on the fence, all in, because it does require you to be all in. And, yes, there's some women that would like to try for a VBAC that do get one because things just unfold so quickly and easily for them. Um, but I find most of the time anyone who's on the fence, it usually doesn't end up happening. So you need to be all in. A supportive partner of VBAC. So it's your partner is almost on the day one of the biggest contributing factors to whether you achieve this or not. And let's bring that back to a hormonal level. So if oxytocin causes contractions and oxytocin is the hormone of love, then love is what's going to get that baby out. Love gets the baby in and love gets the baby out, right? <laughs> yeah. So the more you can be loved on the day, the more touch, the more presence, kissing, caressing, hair stroking, face holding, hand holding, just being with you, the more love your partner can bring to you on the day, the more oxytocin you're going to have the more contractions you're going to have, the stronger contractions you're going to have, the more likely it is you're going to give birth vaginally. So you need to have your partner on board and they need to not be scared either. They need to not be like, oh, yeah, I'll support you, but I don't really understand why you're not just having another Caesar. They need to want this for you and for your baby yeah, and for exactly. your family as well. Yeah. Um, extra birth support. So hiring a doula, hiring an independent midwife, having a friend or sister or mother there 
I do really feel like if it isn't someone who's a birth professional, if you choose someone who's part of your family or your friendship circle, they need they need to have given birth themselves. They need to have had a vaginal birth themselves and they need to be 100% on board and just as passionate about feedback as you. And they need to be able to not be scared and to nurture you and love you and hold you through that. I guess the benefit of having um, someone like a doula or an independent midwife or even a birth keeper with you as your support person is we do have skills that friends and family don't. So we have skills like different positioning. Um, We're listening for noises and we're watching for movements that women make and we see birth so often that we know how to predict things and think ahead and we often really know what that woman needs in that moment based off the noise she's making or based off what she's doing with her body. Um, And sometimes when you take in birth support who is someone that hasn't really attended births before, they don't they don't look at birth through that lens. And so, yes, they can be there to love you and touch you and provide you drinks and be that emotional support, but they probably can't provide the same physical support or birthing knowledge that a trained birth professional can. So there is a bit of a difference between, you know, having a friend or family mm. member versus a trained birth professional. Um, optimal fetal positioning. So what that means is having your baby in a really great position for birth. And this is a big, big topic. Um, basically what I like to do is refer a lot of my clients to spinning babies. So there's a wonderful website and organization called spinning babies. And their whole philosophy is based around the baby will only sit in the space that it has. So how do we optimize the space in the womb? Because sometimes if you have tight ligaments or tight tissue in your pelvic bowl, in your pelvis, and these ligaments all attach to your womb, it can actually pull down on your womb and impede on the space in your womb, which then means that your baby needs to get in a tricky position. And often at the hospital, they will tell you head down is all that matters. And I don't agree with that. I feel like, yes, head down is important, but where your baby's spine is sitting inside of your womb and in your pelvis, I find makes such a massive difference to the length of your labor and to whether you end up having back pain in labor or not. So I try and um, educate and encourage my clients with their maternal positioning in pregnancy to encourage their baby into a great position for birth. So that's something that I really feel like you need to know about and be sort of onto. So sleeping on your left hand side, keeping your knees bet- below your hips, lots of lots of things that you can do to try and encourage your baby into a great position. Um, physical fitness, and for me, physical fitness—it's not so much. I don't believe you need to be fit to give birth. I think the benefit is movement, daily movement so that you don't get sore and tight and um, become more and more immobile as you become more and more pregnant because the more you can move around in labour, the easier your baby's going to navigate your pelvis. So Mm -hmm. keeping your body moving during pregnancy is so important just for movement. I also think physical fitness from a mental point of view is so important you need 
you need to know that you can do hard things. You need to know that you can push your body. And I think the more you can become friends with pushing your body to the point where it's hurting or even it feels painful, you know, you're going for a massive long walk and you're walking quite briskly and your calves start pinging and your calves start saying, ouch, this is this is hurting. And your brain has a choice to slow down, to stop, or to keep going. And this is exactly the same part of your brain that's going to be challenged in labor. There's going to be lots of parts of your body where there's intense sensations, there's stretching and opening and softening and everything goes hard and intense during a contraction. And you have the choice to slow down or stop or keep going. So the more you can lean into being challenged on a mental way like that in pregnancy, it's almost like practicing for labor. It's exercising and building on that muscle so that in labor, when you get challenged and your body's going, this is too hard, I don't want to do this, you should just stop, you should just take that epidural, the other part of your brain knows, no, you can push through, you can do this, come on, this is this is where you need to put your big girl pants on and find some grit and just work with it. Let your support team know that you're struggling, that you're hitting a wall and let them come in and just guide you into a different position, guide you into the shower, guide you into the birth pool, lay you down and do some jiggling so your whole body sighs and relaxes and goes all floppy. And that's the benefit of having some really good support around you is they're able to guide you into these things because they know at that point when you're hitting a wall mm-hmm. what you might what might help. Um, so, yeah, high-level physical fitness but not from a you-need-to-be-fit-to-give-birth point of view, more from the the mental agility and stamina in your brain is is what's going to help you push through those moments in labour. And then for preparation, understanding strategies for managing pre-labour. So pre-labour can go on for days and I, I see so many people who aren't ready for that just completely exhaust themselves in early labour and, you know, they, they stay up all night and they time their contractions and they bounce on the ball and they pace around and they're just, you know, almost giving too much energy and effort into trying to bring this on, that can just exhaust you and it will end up meaning you've got less in your tank for when active labour really kicks in. So I'm always really big around talking to my clients about distraction in early labour, pretending it's not happening, play a game of how long can I pretend I'm not in labour and when you can't pretend anymore, then great. That's when you that's when you want to, you know, let yourself drift away and let all those things happen and get your support team in. Yoga, relaxation, meditation, calm birth, any of those um, mindfulness um, activities that you can bring into your pregnancy. And the benefit of these is because what you're doing here is you are practicing getting into your parasympathetic nervous system. And the more you can do that on a daily basis, the easier it will be for you to switch into that place for birth. And everyone has different things that help them get into their parasympathetic nervous system. For some people, it's just a walk out in the garden. For some people, it's reading. For some people, it's going down to the pool and having a swim, going to a yoga class, going to a dance class. Whatever it is for you that helps you switch off your brain and get back into your body, that is what's really, really good for you to do in pregnancy, to practice switching off, to practice coming back from that fight or flight and that go, go, go that we naturally slip into as mums. Um, Independent childbirth education classes, 
so not the classes that the hospital offers. Um, and that could be online or in person. And there's many independent ones out there. There's calm birth, there's hypnobirthing, there's she births, and then there's all these gorgeous little independent ones that are popping up as well. So I highly recommend doing something like that. You may find a doula like myself who offers independent childbirth education as part of their package. So I teach all of my clients full comprehensive childbirth education in their sessions with me. So whether you're getting it through your doula or through your midwife or you're paying to go along to a workshop or do an online course, it's very, very worthwhile because it's going to deepen your understanding of birth and how it works, which is really, really important for you and your partner. Um, Seeing an osteopath, a chiropractor, a craniosacral pelvic person, someone who does body work that's going to help you with your pelvis in pregnancy. So help you with alignment, help you with tension. Um, I'm also a really big fan of doing beautiful internal work as well. There's a lot of things that we can do to support and help the body externally, but there's also some beautiful um, gentle work that we can do in an internal way. If you feel open to it, there's lots of ligaments in there. Um, I know that people who offer internal work also offer um, scar massage and and emotional scar release work, which I think as a VBAC mum is just so important because we we tend to numb. That, that whole area of our body for ourselves is numb after having major abdominal surgery. I remember after my first cesarean, it was almost like that whole lower segment of my belly didn't exist you know I would even I would even touch it and I couldn't even feel myself touching it it was it was mm-hmm. numb to touch, but it was also numb for me to even energetically check in with and I held so much shame around my first Caesar that I probably held in that area of my body and it was almost like my brain just wanted to disconnect not look at that not look at my scar not touch my scar I wanted to pretend that that whole area of my body was not there and it wasn't till my third pregnancy really that my midwife who I engaged with encouraged me to put my hand on my scar and thank it, thank it for birthing my babies and reconnect in with that part of my body and have reverence for it rather than shame. And that felt really big for me because it felt like I was accepting what happened to me and I didn't want to accept what happened to me because I didn't feel okay about it but then I realized that me punishing my own body was not the answer so that was that was a really beautiful thing for me to put my hand on my scar and reconnect with that part of my body and then when I felt ready to I started doing some scar massage and um it was just so, it felt so big to just even feel the tension that was in there. And I had shooting, burning pain from, I'd, I'd, I'd had adhesions from my scars. And um, even now, 13, well, no, 13 years ago was my VBAC. So my last cesarean was 15 years ago now. And 15 years on, I still have pain from my adhesions around my scar tissue. So it's something that I focus on a little bit for a while and then, you know, I still, there's still work for me to do there. But yeah, doing some of that work in your pregnancy can be really beneficial. Um, Acupuncture for ripening of the cervix, but not for induction stuff. So acupuncture to help get your body ready. And I'm also a big fan of acupressure. I feel like that's just as beneficial. Um, 
to try and prep your body, prep your hormones and get your body ready for birth. But I have to say I'm not a fan. I mean, unless it feels right for you and you are in the hospital system and you're staring down the barrel of being 42 weeks and all of the medical things, I'm not a fan of doing acupuncture for induction because I feel like it's still an induction. It's still asking your body and forcing your body to do something it's not ready to do yet. And we know one of the biggest contributing factors to having a successful VBAC is spontaneous labour. So your body, every, everything in your body lining up for this beautiful event and it, it flowing naturally. And if you try and force your body, whether it's with acupuncture or with syntocin on, that's you doing something to your body to force it to do something it's not ready to do yet. So I'm, I'm a bit cautious of induction acupuncture sometimes. Um, Counselling to debrief previous births. So doing a birth debrief. Um, seeing a counsellor, seeing a psychologist, someone who does have some kind of experience or expertise with birth trauma or a perinatal psychologist perhaps, um, just so that you feel like you are at peace with your previous experience and you're not dragging any of that trauma into this experience. You want to be able to give this birth a clean slate to give it every chance without you know, repeat trauma coming into this time. And I feel like having some good psychological or counselling support can help you do that. Discussing possible crisis of confidence. So crisis of confidence is a term that Rhea Dempsey coined and I did my training with Rhea Dempsey. Um, and what the crisis of confidence means is possible hurdles in your labour that are coming from an emotional point of view. And we also know that the emotional can then feed into the physical. So thinking about things that might be triggers for you um, and there's so many different possibilities here and they really are personal so I can't really go into too many examples but thinking about things that from your past that you've found hard that perhaps haven't been healed or dealt with that may come up and be triggered for you. Um, and, you know, for a lot of women it can sometimes even be that they've had a previous miscarriage and that loss and that grief that sits deeply in their body and they know that at some point during the labour that that might rear its head. So that can potentially be flagged as a possible crisis of confidence of what if I lose this baby? What if this baby's not okay? Um, so talking with your team and, again, another benefit of having a team around you is they can hold that for you, you know. I had some personal emotional stuff that felt really big for me in my third birth and I was worried it was going to come up for me and I had a chat with my midwife and this was one of the most beautiful things that she said to me and offered me she said darling you don't need to have all of that sorted in order to have a baby and she said the fact that you're aware of it and that you've flagged it as something that could be a hurdle or a blockage for you is so awesome. And she said whatever you, whatever is there for you on the day, if it comes up, what you can do is you can put it in a box and you can hand it to me. And she said whether you do that in your own mind energetically or whether you literally go and get a Tupperware container from your kitchen <laughs> and imagine yourself putting all of this shit in that box and handing it to me then that's what we do. And just knowing, being given permission to not have everything sorted in order to give birth was just such a gift. And I ended up not needing to do that with her on the day because I think in that moment when she offered it, 
it happened. It happened for me. Mm. I gave myself permission. I don't have to have this issue sorted by then. It's okay. And even the fact that she knew that that was something that was there for me and that she would hold space for that for me, that just gave me full permission to let it go. And that was that was so awesome. Um, spontaneous onset of labour, so, so not starting labour with acupuncture, not starting labour with syntocinon or breaking your waters or balloons or even stretch and sweeps, any of those things. Yes, you can absolutely have a VBAC if you have had any of those things. I've supported many women who have needed or wanted inductions to have successful VBACs. But we do know the chance of having a successful VBAC is higher if you have spontaneous onset of labour. No intervention to the physiological process. So that means really just the, the goal here is physiological birth, which means spontaneous labour, no interruption to the labouring process, so no augmentation, no adding the drip, no breaking your waters halfway through, um, no epidural, no instrumental delivery, natural third stage of the delivery of the placenta. So that's what we call physiological birth. So no intervention to the physiological process and that that will mean different things for different people. So some people who are really passionate about home birth they believe that walking out of your front door is an intervention. Right. Some people see vaginal exams in labour as an intervention. Some people see um, having a bag of fluids in labour as an intervention. It's something that's being put in their body that's not normal, that's not natural. So you need to find your own where you sit with what's intervention and what's assistance. Um but again, we know that the rate of having a successful VBAC, like the less, the less your physiological process and hormones are messed with, the more likely it is you'll achieve your VBAC. Mm-hmm. Does that mean sometimes we wouldn't benefit from having something? No. Um, sometimes we do need something. Sometimes we do need help. But I feel like when we need help, it's not an intervention, it's assistance. And so sometimes you need to be careful how you frame things too. Um, no restrictions on time, movement or position, and no restrictions on food or fluids. If you're in hospital and your midwife's telling you not to eat and drink, you need to see that as a massive red flag that they've got you pegged for a Caesar. Mm. There should be no reason you're not allowed to eat and drink in labour. Your body is doing the hardest thing it's probably ever done. Mm. Imagine telling someone running a marathon they're not allowed to have drink. That's so wrong on so many It is. And the reason they tell you that they don't want you to eat and drink is because just in case you have to have a cesarean and just in case when you have that cesarean you have to have a general anaesthetic and just in case when you have that general anaesthetic you aspirate on your own vomit, they then restrict you from eating and drinking in labour. It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, So, yeah, you don't want to be put on the clock you don't want to be told that you have to be X amount dilated by X amount time, otherwise you're going to theatre. You want to be have freedom of movement and being able to get in whatever position you want to. And that kind of ties into the last point here, which is an active and upright labour, which often continuous monitoring doesn't allow for. So sometimes having the, the CTG belts around you, and this is why I do, I do experience a lot of women in the hospital system wanting a VBAC declining CTG and the main reason they're declining the CTG is 
Well, there's two reasons really. One is that it does restrict your movement, you know, and and you're either tethered to a machine through the wires or if they've got the telemetry or Bluetooth machine, you can move around a bit more. But I find that machine loses contact so often that the midwife ends up constantly fiddling with you, constantly asking you to sit still or change into a different position because she's not picking up a good trace. And so your movement and positions end up being so interfered with and dictated just by this machine. And then the other reason that a lot of women don't want this type of monitoring for a VBAC birth is because they know and they do some reading and research that being on this machine increases their risk of having a cesarean by 70%. And it's a shame because there's been a couple of studies done on how to predict uterine rupture. And in all three studies that have been done, the number one way that they've been able to predict uterine rupture is fetal monitoring. So that's why the hospitals are, you know, very sometimes pushy for VBAC mums to be on the fetal monitoring because they feel like that is the best way for them to determine if this mum's going to have a uterine rupture and have a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So it is a big decision to make. But, you know, for women who are birthing at home, we don't have CT machines at home. We only have Doppler intermittent monitoring, and that seems to be completely fine for those mummers. And from what I know, I don't think there's any difference in uterine rupture rates in home versus hospital. So that tells me that the CTG machine is not, it's not predicting any more uterine ruptures than what we're finding at home anyway. Yeah. I've actually in my career never heard of a uterine rupture at home. The only uterine ruptures I've heard of have been in hospital. So mm. I would guess that it's a pretty rare event. We know that it's, you know, on average one in 200 women attempting a VBAC will have a uterine rupture of some sort. And the word rupture is also quite, it's a strong word, you know. Sometimes it's just a thinning. Scary. yeah. Sometimes it's just a slight opening of the side of the scar. You know, when we say the word rupture, we almost envisage a you know explosion and a baby bursting out of a woman's stomach and that is not that's not what a rupture is so yeah yeah so they're they're kind of all my dot points for things to think about and focus on you know to put you in the best chance of achieving a VBAC yeah yeah excellent I'm sure that that'll be very useful for many people so take take note of all of those things yeah yeah but it's um you know, it's definitely something to sit with and, and there'll be things, I, I used this list as um, the basis of writing down, you know, I went through each of those dot points and I wrote down, okay, what can I do about that? Who can I see about that? What can I read about that? What can I listen to about that? How do I educate myself around that and make sure that I can give that dot point a really big green tick? Yeah, wonderful. And I would have to say, with my VBAC after two cesareans, the only one that I didn't genuinely feel like I ticked was the physical fitness one. I was moving, but I also, um, I could have done more. I'm not a lover of, you know, massive workouts mm-hmm. and cardio and all of that stuff. So for me, it was around, I was like, you know what, I'm running around and picking up, up after two toddlers all day. And surely that's mm-hmm. got to count as some level yeah, of physical. I think so. 
And I might have gone for a walk once or twice a week and maybe a swim once a week or a yoga class once a week. And I went, you know what, this is more than what I normally do and this is what feels good and this is what I can manage and this is enough. Yep. But but I'm honest, when I look at that list, that's the only that's the only thing on that list that I feel like I could have done more with. Um, but everything else I would just, yeah, absolutely ticked off and felt so confident going into my birth because I knew that no matter what happened, I'd done everything I could have and I would have no regrets. Yeah, wonderful. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Thanks for listening. Sharing our stories is such a meaningful way to connect with ourselves and others, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Follow us on Instagram at Definitely Baby Podcast for photos of our weekly guests, updates, or to share your own story. I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate the podcast, or share with a friend. It really helps us to grow and help other parents feel more supported by these beautiful stories. I'll see you next week for another lovely episode.